are listening to Rootbound, a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. This episode of Rootbound is sponsored by flowers, nature's sweetest smelling, most beautiful reproductive organs. Thank you for listening to this episode of Rootbound. I'm your host, and my name is Steve. And Rootbound is the podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside. And normally each week, I invite a guest who joins me on the program to share with us all about a plant that means something to them. And then I share with the guest about a plant that means something to me. But this week, it's a little bit different. This is Mixed Greens number three. This is our kind of grab bag episode where we revisit some plants we spoke about before and talk about some things that maybe we missed back we originally talked about the plants and some other just fun stuff so uh it's gonna be a fun one stay tuned but before we go just a little bit of housekeeping number one uh astute listeners to the podcast will have noticed that the show normally comes out on tuesday mornings and now i would like to say that officially the podcast will now be coming out on wednesdays at some point uh that's gonna give me a little bit more room after the weekend to get the show ready and also if you listen back to the tomato episode I recently had a child, and that has taken up a little bit more of my time, as you can imagine, and uh, putting the show out on Wednesdays just gives me a little bit more breathing room to uh, get the show out to you. So look for the show in your podcatcher sometime on Wednesdays. And second, if you have been listening to Rootbound and you are enjoying the show, head on over to rootboundpodcast.com slash support to find out all the ways you can help the show, including just telling a friend about it. You can follow on Instagram, at Rootbound Podcast. You can send me an email, rootboundpodcast at gmail.com. And you can also support Rootbound on Patreon, and I would be so thankful if you wanted to pitch in there. And with that, let's get straight into our Mixed Greens episode of Rootbound. We're going to have some fun. Here we go. Let the fun begin. Back on episode 59 of the podcast, when I spoke with Debbie Naha Koretsky about stinging nettle, a plant that I'm really fascinated with and I learned so much from her about it um, there was one thing that we forgot to bring up on the show and it's something that I've read about but never had any experience with and I thought here on this mixed greens episode of Rootbound we would dig into it a little more and that's the idea of making cheese with stinging nettle now that sounds kind of weird because you know it's a plant and cheese is milk but it's it's not purely made out of stinging nettle it is using stinging nettle to make rennet. So you can hear I've got some water boiling here. I'm gonna turn it down a little bit and so this gets to a simmer. But rennet, uh, which is used in most cheese making, is a product from the stomach of a calf and when you add that to milk, it causes it to coagulate and turn into cheese. You can also make cheese just by adding acid to milk. I've done that a lot before to make fresh cheese like queso fresco and that also works but it's not quite as efficient as extracting all the proteins and fats out of the milk. Um, and so rennet is, is what makes harder cheeses, cheeses that can age longer. And apparently, stinging nettle can be a source of a vegetable-based rennet. And so I'm going to try to make that today. Excuse my cat Cheeto who's meowing in the background. He has always lots to say. Um, but I have a huge bag of nettle leaf that I bought online. It's actually comically large. I didn't expect it to be this big. Um, but I, you know, if you listen uh, 
but you know, sharp listeners to the podcast will know that I just had a kid, and so it's been a little bit hard to go out and forge uh, stinging metal myself. I really wanted to do that for this experiment, but I have not had the time, so I bought a big bag of uh, dried nettle leaf online, and I'm going to follow this recipe, which essentially says that you you boil a whole bunch of stinging nettle leaves in water, and I even quartered the recipe I found, and it still seems like it's going to be a ton of nettle leaf. I'm just opening the bag here now. Looking at this nettle leaf in here, oh yeah, it's like really fine, so maybe... Maybe I don't need to use as much because uh, it's super really fine cut and sifted. I think it's mostly made for tea, and I'm going to be trying that too, which uh, seems pretty fun. But uh, I'm going to just kind of like pour a bunch of nettle into this water. I kind of quartered the recipe, and I don't think I'm need, going to need to use as much nettle as the, as the recipe said, which is going to call for like half a pound. Um, but let's see. I'm going to put a bunch in here. We'll get it boiling down in this cup of water, and we'll see if we can get it to... Um, to really boil and just add add so much. I'm, I'm planning to just add enough nettle leaf that the uh, is the water is almost completely saturated with it. That's my plan. And then uh, turn it down to a simmer. Oh yeah, there's, there's yeah, this is, I need, may need to add a little more water already. It's kind of like soaking it up entirely. I think I added too much nettle leaf. Um, let's add a little more water and then I'm gonna let this simmer for about 30 minutes and then I'm gonna add some salt, which apparently helps extract the, the compounds in the stinging nettle that can make the cheese coagulate. And then after that, we'll uh, let it cool and we'll check back in when I add it to the milk and we'll see what kind of coagulation we get. So this is the uh, stinging nettle rennet making process. Thanks for joining me in this experiment. Let's yeah, check back in later in the episode. Working on my night cheese. Jack? Do you know what time it is? I was sound asleep. I heard you singing Night Cheese. Back on the tomato episode of the podcast, my wife Carla and I uh, traded various fun facts and dazzling details about the humble tomato. But there's one that I had in my notes and I forgot to mention that I'd like to share with you now. And uh, do you remember back in like, I don't know, mid-2000s when uh, there was this whole like debate about whether pizza is a vegetable? <laughs> Does this ring a bell? I was I when I thought about tomatoes, this came into my head for some reason, and I had to look it up, and 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 read what was really happening back then. And essentially, there was this debate uh, in politics about uh, about like healthy school lunches, and the debate came down to like what counts as a vegetable serving in food, and there was some talk of whether uh, you could have an like an eighth of a cup of tomato sauce count as a vegetable or whether you needed to have a full half cup, which is like a serving of most other vegetables. Uh, and it came down where, yes, you only need an eighth of a cup to count as a serving of vegetables. And that's about as much that goes on a pizza. And so therefore the tomato sauce on a pizza counts as a vegetable. And so then the whole news headlines were like, oh, well, now Congress has voted to say that pizza counts as a vegetable, which is not exactly true but it is pretty funny. Rootbound is brought to you by the Humble Tomato, making pizza a vegetable for school children worldwide. Speaking of fake ads, listeners of the podcast will know that we start and end every episode with a fake ad read by the wonderful fake ad man himself, David Lunny. And I thought uh, here I would just pull back the curtain a little bit on our process. And so after we go back and forth on kind of the copy for these fake ads, I send Dave over the final copy. And then he tends to record one big long file and he does several takes 
of every single ad with little bits of changes here and there. And it's actually very entertaining to listen to the whole like fake ad thing because often there's color commentary in between. Um, a lot of breaking of the fourth wall, which you, the listener, don't get to hear. It's kind of just a special thing that only I get to hear, which is very fun. But there was one moment uh, recently where I sent him something and I, I forgot to maybe fill in all the details. And uh, the whole kind of uh, segment where uh, David was trying to record this particular fake ad I found very entertaining. And so I thought I would play that for you now. Rootbound is brought to you by Sepples. Hmm. Rootbound is brought to you by Sepples. You know those little green things under the pedals? Yeah. Sepples keep the pedals safe. Sepples, the working plants pedal. Rootbound is brought to you by Sepples. You know those little green things under the pedals? Sepples keep the pedals safe. Sepples, the working plants pedal. Sepals. 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 No, I'm not. You're pronouncing them wrong. How do you pronounce them? Sepals. I knew that. Thank you, disembodied voice. From above. Rootbound is br- uh, root rootbound. Okay. Rootbound is brought to you by Sepals. You know, those little green things under the pedals? I totally knew about them. Sepals, keep the pedals safe. Sepals, the working plant's pedal. Sepal, Sepals. <laughs> Sepals, the working plant's pedal. Hold on. Okay, help me out, YouTube. Which is it? Sepal. Ah, you're a, so you're a sepal person, huh? Okay. Sepal. Ah, well, yeah, I heard you the first time, YouTube. Thank you for the pronunciation guide. Sepal. You're really getting irritating now, YouTube. I'm going to shut you off. You're going to get shut off now, YouTube. You have anything to say about that? Sepal. Yeah, okay. Okay, back in the kitchen with the nettle rennet cheese experiment. I've got about four cups of milk on the stove here, and we're trying to heat it up to around 165 degrees before we get started. So we've got that going, just uh, hitting around 80 degrees on the milk. And I have my stinging nettle rennet, which I have just strained. I got about a cup's worth. It is like a dark brown with a hint of green on the edges. Um, it actually smells really good. Um, yeah, I, I, it actually smells really good in my opinion. Uh, Carla said it smelled like a, uh, a boiling peat bog, but I actually think it smells quite like savory uh, and tasty. Um, I should only need about a quarter of this according to the recipe, so we'll see. When I've made um, cheese in the past using the acid cheese method, I just add a little bit of the acid and I keep adding it until the curdling kind of stops. So I'm, that's what I'm gonna, planning to do here. I'm kind of winging this cheese-wise, um, so we'll see if what I get is even edible at the end. Um, but yeah, we got the milk heating up here. Let's see what temperature we're at. All right, climbing up to around 90 degrees. I'm gonna turn the heat up a little bit more. Yes, but apparently there is a long tradition in Europe of using nettle rennet to make cheese. Uh, and I'll put some links in the show notes to various cheeses that uh, use nettle rennet. There's one really famous one which 
can't actually tell if they use the nettle rennet, but they wrap the cheese in nettle leaves, and that cheese is called Cornish Yard, which looks very delicious, and I would like to try someday. So we got the milk, is about, is just getting right up to temperature here. We have hit, let's see, 166 degrees, which is pretty good for the cheese making process. So now I'm just gonna slowly pour in my nettle rennet, and we'll see if it curdles at all, or if this is a failed experiment. All right, here we go. You're just gonna put a little bit in at a time here. All right, and we'll stir it. See if it starts to curdle. Mm, put in a little bit more. Probably needs to sit for a little bit. It's not it's not thickening up as much as the acid cheese, but actually that might be part of the process. So um, we're just gonna be patient, uh, and I'm gonna add a little bit more, let it uh, cook a little bit, and then we'll strain it, and we'll see if we actually have a cheese. Um, I'm not sure if we will. So stay tuned to the end of the episode to see whether this experiment is a success. The cactus, through adaptation to new and hostile environments, has spread from its home in the Americas to some of the farthest reaches of Earth. Back on the episode about prickly pear, I spoke with Will about the prickly pear. And at one moment, Will mentioned that uh, prickly pear grows in Italy. And I was like, oh, well, it's actually native to North America, but maybe it does also grow there. It's possible it's been introduced there. Um, but then the other day, I was watching that show, The White Lotus, season two, which takes place in Sicily. And there's these like wide shots of the cliffs around Sicily, and they're just covered with prickly pear. So yeah, they grow there and they they are there like all over the place, which is really interesting because they are not native, but they have really just uh, established themselves in Italy, which is fascinating. And that reminded me about this little documentary that I found on archive.org when I was researching prickly pear. And I'll just play a little segment of that now. Through its ability to adapt to new and hostile environments, the cactus has spread far from its native Western hemisphere. During the 1830s, the introduction of the species Opuntia inermis, or common prickly pear, into the Botany Bay area of Australia was a sample of catastrophic plant adaptation. Ships, possibly from Brazil, may have carried specimens of the cactus to Australia. Settlers, obtaining cuttings of the plant, planted them around their home sites. Rapidly acclimatizing to the drought-like conditions of Australia, the plants began to spread, cutting, crushing, burning failed to halt the spread of the prickly pear cactus. Mixtures of arsenic were tried, killing plants and sometimes settlers as well. By 1912, all controls having failed, the plants continued to spread. Eight years later, 60 million acres of land had been abandoned. A million more were being lost each year to the cactus. Desperate to bring the plant under control, the government began searching for a natural predator. 150 insect and parasite enemies of the prickly pear were imported from the Americas and tested exhaustively. All failed, except one species of moth, 
Cactoblastis cactorum from Argentina. In 1926, the moth was released into the countryside to lay its eggs. Developing from moth eggs laid upon the cactus, larvas tunneled into the plants and soon reduced them to a rotting mass. Within six years, most of the cacti had been destroyed. Introduced into remote parts of the globe, the cactus has adapted to conditions far different from those of its native environment. From winter cold of the American deserts, to the heat of India, Hawaii, and the Galapagos Islands, cacti have survived and reproduced, sometimes upsetting the ecology of the land. The ability of plants and animals to adapt to foreign environments should be a warning of the consequences of introducing new species into established areas. The ecological disaster caused by the prickly pear cactus in Australia should remind us that the balance of nature is a fragile one. Back on the uh, Coneflower and Black-Eyed Susan episode of the podcast, I spoke with Laura Oldham, and after the show was recorded, she came back to me with a little purple coneflower anecdote that uh, she forgot to mention on the podcast, and so I will read that to you now. In the message from Laura, it says, During our recent Native Plant Backyard Challenge kickoff, Tisa Watts of the Columbia Garden School walked us through her favorite native plants. She explained how redbud trees would soon be exploding with purple throughout Ohio, she swooned over her native button bush, but warned us that thanks to the last few years, its blossoms may trigger some strong reactions. And when she got to purple coneflower, Echinacea purpurea, she had to pause to let her words catch up with her love for the native perennial. Tisa doted over the purple coneflower and its versatility, hardiness, and benefits for pollinators throughout the entire year. And then she interjected a quick anecdote that led to the hundred or so native plant lovers gathered in the Scioto Audubon Center to giggle. Listen, Echinacea purpurea is like the plainest girl in school showing up to prom in the fanciest shoes. Tisa moved on to the next slide and the next round of native perennials, but the phrase has stuck with me since. I reached out for some clarification and maybe some more explanation. What did she mean about my favorite native plant? Here's what Tisa had to say. Purple coneflower is just an easygoing plant. She looks great. She's not the diva. She's not the princess. She doesn't need a lot of fussing over. She's just there to have a good time. She may not be the prettiest girl at the prom, but she wears fabulous shoes and knows how to have a great time. So there it is, my favorite beloved purple coneflower, a favorite of both pollinators and mine, is the plainest girl in school showing up to prom in the most fabulous pair of sequined heels. She's not here for a long time, but she's here for a good time with her bee, bird, and butterfly buddies. I just feel, I feel like the prettiest girl to dance. You all remember Aja Yasir, who told us all about American hazelnut way back on episode 11 of the podcast. If you haven't heard it, go back and listen to it. Um, but recently I was chatting with her about another plant we've talked about on the show, and I thought I would have her share that with you as well. And so here is Aja. Hey, y'all. It's Aja here to talk about your pond. Oh my goodness, y'all. I love this plant. It grows wild on my land in Mississippi and it makes a delicious caffeinated drink. That's right, y'all. We have a caffeinated tea that grows right here that is indigenous to North America. And traditionally, it has been used for a very long time by American Indians for ceremony. It also induces vomiting. <laughs> so I go out of my way not to make it that strong, okay? 
because I don't want to induce vomiting as I'm drinking it. But it is good if it's not made very strong. In the Choctaw language, it is itihishi halopa. And that's how you say yopan in Choctaw. And when you make the drink, it is kati okchi, which means thorn juice. And that indicates how thorny this plant is. You have to be careful when you pick because there are thorns, not very big thorns, but it can be difficult to pick if you are not skilled in getting the yopan from a forested area. So what I do is I make sure I have on some gloves and I ask for permission for the plant from the plant. May I please take some of your leaves? And then if the plant says yes, I gather some of the leaves and I put them in some purified water and I boil it. Yep. Some people roast it, but I tend to like to boil the leaves in purified water and I boil it for about maybe three to five minutes and I let it sit overnight. And when you let it sit overnight, it has a beautiful golden color and I drink it. I like drinking it in the morning because it's a pick-me-upper, but it also helps me to refocus and think about my day. It helps me to sit with myself. I really enjoy drinking it outside while the birds are just flying or I'm just communing with nature and it really centers me. It's interesting me, especially when I'm on the land in Mississippi. I see it as a very sacred drink and I try to carve out that sacred time to commune with the drink. It's not something that I drink every day, but it's something that I drink when I feel as if I need to commune with myself or I need to get my thoughts together on some things. So yeah, that's it. My kati okchi, my thorn juice. That is how I commune with it. And again, in the Choctaw language, it is itihishi halopa. Thank you for having me and go and see if you can enjoy some yopan. Just one more quick note about Yopan, which I mentioned back on the episode uh, when I spoke about Yopan. I think it was episode five of the podcast. Um, the scientific name for Yopan is Elex vomitoria, which, uh, as uh, Aja mentioned, this uh, emetic property of, of Yopan. And I will tell you, I've never had <laughs> any urge to vomit while drinking Yopan, and uh, I make it quite strong. And so... Um, I don't think there's much of a risk, and, and, and the reason why I got that scientific name is a little bit in question, um, but I'm sure, like like uh, Paracelsus says, uh, the dose makes it poison, and if you were to drink enough strong Yopan, I'm sure vomiting would occur, and there is some uh, uh, documentation of that. But just don't be scared of this drink. It's awesome, despite its weird scientific name. Thanks again for sharing, Aja. Uh, that was really interesting, and I'm going to be making my Yopan tea like that all summer. So now the moment you have all been waiting for, the conclusion to my stinging nettle cheese saga. I like experimenting with things. If you listen to the show, you've probably understood that. I make all sorts of weird uh, alcoholic concoctions. I like making strange uh, recipes from foraged food. And 
Experiments are great, but one thing about experiments is that experiments often fail, and I, I have to say, I think maybe my cheese experiment failed. Now, I did get some material that you could call cheese, and it actually doesn't taste too bad. It, it's, it's cheese, but I was expecting to get, you know, a nice little round thing of cheese that I could, like, take a nice picture of, and that is not what happened. So let me kind of rewind a little bit. Uh, the last you heard, I had uh, put the, you know, stinging nettle rent it into the cheese and we were waiting to see well after that it was taking a long time to uh to coagulate it was not doing anything it was just kind of like milk sitting on the counter for a while and i was like oh no what have i done Uh, (laughs) it's just just milk and i'm used to making acid cheese which is when you squeeze uh, you know vinegar or lemon juice into the milk to make the cheese um and that process is cool because it happens really fast like when you squeeze that in there the the curds uh, form immediately and it's a very visual process. I did not realize that was not going to be the case with this stinging nettle rennet. I had to be patient. So after doing some reading and also uh, in a kind of a fit of panic, adding even more stinging nettle rennet to the milk, which was probably a mistake, um, I checked back on the milk the next morning, and it had actually coagulated. And I was like, oh, cool. I, I, <laughs> I didn't completely fail. Hooray, I have something to say at the end of the podcast. So then I took it, and I... Uh, Put it in a cheesecloth, and then my first mistake. Here's my first mistake because I'm used to making stuff with the, because um, I'm used to making the acid cheese. Those curds are much firmer and bigger, and the curds in this stinging nettle rennet cheese were very fine. So I actually squeezed this cheesecloth, which you're not supposed to do. At least maybe not until the cheese gets more firm. So I actually ended up squeezing a lot of the curds through the cheesecloth back into the bowl. I was like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. But there was still some left in the cheesecloth, so I did what you do. I hung it up, let it drip. And then I took what was left in the, the pot that I squeezed a lot of those curds out back into the pot, um, and I heated it a little bit more, and then I added some vinegar, and so I kind of made a hybrid cheese, if that's the thing. I was trying to Google if that was a thing where if you have like a part rennet, part uh, acid cheese. But anyway, I got those um, curds in there to coagulate a, a second time, and actually that's kind of uh, inspired by the process of ricotta because ricotta actually means cooked again in Italian and that's where they take the leftover whey that still has a lot of curds in it they cook it again and they extract as much of the proteins out of it so I kind of made stinging nail ricotta it tastes pretty good I would say as the first time I made something like that it's quite spreadable and then in my cheesecloth after 24 hours it kind of like it. Did, I was expecting it to stay kind of in a ball but it kind of just lost a lot of its shape and what I could get out of the cheesecloth was not very much at all and it had kind of the consistency of maybe like a firm cream cheese or something like that and maybe if I were to take that and age it a little bit longer it would get a little harder but it was barely any enough to do that with so my uh stinging nettle cheese experiment one I can say it does work you can make cheese using stinging nettle for rennet Two, experiments fail, and that's good because you can learn from your mistakes, and I already have a few things I want to try for next time. And so, three, I'm going to try this again at some point. I'm going to try to perfect this, and if I get it really good, I will share with you on my social media and probably on the podcast. And with that, we reach the end of another Mixed Greens episode of Rootbound. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to everyone who uh, contributed to this episode of Rootbound, Laura Oldham, Aja Yasir, and the fake ad man himself, David Lani, 
If you like Rootbound and you want to support the show, check out rootboundpodcast.com slash support and learn all the ways that you can support the show. Rootbound is hosted by failed cheesemaker Steve Ellington. Music by Christian Kriegeskota. Fake ads, once again, by David Lonnie. Rootbound is a podcast about plants for when you're stuck inside, but if you can go outside, head over to your favorite pizza place and order up a serving of vegetables. This episode of Rootbound is sponsored by Flowers, nature's sweetest smelling, most... (laughs) 